This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're right here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. And of course, Carol, that's part of a team of 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. And Jason, you can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every weekday. Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. Jason Kelly and Alex Steele here with you on a Friday. Delighted to have back with us our reality check, our human gut check, which actually is a little bit of a pun since you're a gastroenterologist, Dr. Ian Lesbader. I never really thought about that. Jason, you are always funny, but especially today. How are you? <laughs> Doing very well. Uh, and I'm happy to introduce you, if you haven't met her before, to Alex Steele, our colleague from Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio, uh, joining me in Carol's absence. Uh, Dr. Lesbader, of course, is Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine at NYU's Langone Medical Center. So give us that reality check, uh, Ian. You know, I feel like the news has been slightly better, maybe a little this week. As we look across the country, certainly things feel stable in New York. What do you see from your perspective? Definitely good news and bad news. By the way, I too am a native New Yorker, born and raised on the Upper West Side. So there are not a lot of us, so we have to stick together. But I'm a little more than 16 years. Uh, (laughs) So in terms of the virus, there was a recent article in the New England Journal of Medicine, Correspondence, that was a little disconcerting. It showed patients with mild uh, disease that, that were treated with oxygen, you know, not totally asymptomatic patients, had a drop over the course of approximately 120 days in their antibodies. So uh, it is more clear that the antibodies that are forming are maybe transient, uh, finite, and that raises questions about vaccines, how much of an antibody response uh, they elicit, And certainly for patients who say, I don't want a vaccine, I don't need a vaccine, I had it, there really is a question, even if you do have antibodies, how long they will last. Last. So I think that that was an interesting new bit of data, uh, not to mention, of course, the increased cases that we're seeing. Always good to meet another fellow New Yorker. Uh, Where'd you grow up, by the way? Uh, 96 between Columbus and Amsterdam, and then moved over to the east side, so I went to and medical school here, so I'm a, a long-time New Yorker, but I love the whole country. Thank you. Uh, yeah, yeah, you have to say that. 87th and West End, so we were in the hood. Okay, so um, the antibody research uh, was a little confusing this week, but also confusing to me was then the positive T-cell research. Can you walk me through sort of what the differences are? Well, uh, the immune response really is composed of two arms. Typically, we think of B-cells, which form antibodies, and they work uh, both in a short term called IgM antibodies and then IgG, which tend to be longer lasting. But all of those can vary. Typically, if you have certain viruses like measles, if you actually get the disease as opposed to the vaccine, those are lifetime antibodies, smallpox, there are a variety. But then there are also diseases like HIV or hepatitis C, where you get antibodies and they do not kill the virus. People have chronic HIV or chronic hepatitis C. You need antiviral treatments. But there are also cellular immunity. Typically, we call the you know, T-cell-related uh, immunity, which also helps kill a variety of pathogens from bacteria, also to viruses. And that, we feel, may be longer lasting. We're just really beginning to see uh, with these vaccines, we need to study 
what is the nature of, of the response? Ideally, you get both, and ideally that will give you a longer uh, immune protection, again, assuming the virus doesn't mutate. So, Ian, as you look at the look ahead to the vaccine, I, I wanted to ask you a question that came up in a conversation we had yesterday with the new president of the AMA, and it largely is about, actually, I, I'm checking myself, a conversation we had with a doctor from Johns Hopkins, uh, who I believe is actually a sociologist, and, and talking about the culture of vaccination and mm-hmm. how she and her colleagues are actually worried about when the vaccine is available, essentially convincing people that they should get it. How much do you worry about that? You are exactly right. And that really is a concern. I've spoken to my own patients and I've also looked at studies. And really, we're talking about perhaps 50 percent of people who would be hesitant. And it's unclear, you know, what this is, what kind of beliefs are going on there, fear. And certainly some of these vaccines are new, messenger RNA, Moderna, the AstraZeneca, there are a variety of new approaches which we think are more effective, but they are uh, untested, meaning they haven't been used for decades. Mm-hmm. So vaccines are essentially useless unless you get people to take them. Well, so, what percentage of the population would have to? We really are worried about uh, at least a 50% herd immunity. So we're talking about 50% of the population, 50 or 60%, maybe even more than that, uh, they either have the disease with long-lasting antibodies, who we just said many of the cases do not have long-lasting antibodies, and or getting a vaccine. So even people who've had the disease, be it mild, if they do not have antibodies or antibody titers, even if they were proven to have it, we're going to have to convince them to take the vaccine in addition to uh, people who've never had the vaccine. 300 million people is a lot, and so you're talking potentially you know, 100 million people who will need a vaccine, maybe more. And that is a serious concern if if the majority or even a large percent don't want to take the vaccine. That would be a problem. Right. All right. Ian Lespader, Dr. Ian Lespader, hang with us uh, for a minute. We're going to do some news and uh, some other business and come back to you. We're going to talk about reopening what you're seeing uh, here in New York because it is very different, I think, from what's going on in the rest of the country. One headline, Alex, uh, crossing that you were nice enough to just share with the group here. Trump says China trade deal means less to him now after the virus. This is based on an interview I believe he's giving with Barstool Sports. Barstool Sports, Bogman. I'm pretty sure that's David Portnoy's. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, it is. Uh, he, he was the guy who sort of incited all the Robin Hood traders, right? He would take Scrabble letters out of a Scrabble bag yes. and then decide that's where he was going to invest. So it's really interesting to me that Trump is giving an interview to him specifically. But aside that point, you know, the trade deal, going after the trade deal, that's the nuclear option in the market. So if he does yeah. that, all bets off. Yeah, absolutely. And we saw a lot of evidence this week that even with consulate closures and all the back and forth, as long as the trade deal is intact, you're exactly right. Investors are like, all right, we're going to keep on trucking. Exactly. (laughs) All right. Much more ahead, including more with Dr. Les Bader. This is Bloomberg. All right. So talk to us about schools, Dr. Ian Lespater. What's your latest thinking as you talk to your colleagues on the medical side? Because everybody's got a take here. Well, I've got a number of teachers who are a little afraid to go back. Uh, I think, as has been stated, you know, young kids generally do very well. Often they carry the virus, but they tend not to be very sick. So they're sort of asymptomatic carriers. So I think students will be fairly safe, really, even up through high school without a problem, and probably through college as well. 
their teachers uh, may have a little bit more risk, but I believe nothing is risk-free. Everything you do has some risk. And I would say if you're not in a high-risk group, high blood pressure, diabetes, obesity, many of our teachers do have some of those problems. And I think if you're wearing a mask and you're teaching, I think you're, you're relatively safe, and I think we have to try school openings um, because I think we can't get the economy back until basically kids are safe in schools. So I think it is reasonable to do, uh, certainly in certain states like New York where, where the case rate is, is way down, I think it's very reasonable and appropriate to do that. And I think as we do it and it works, people will feel more confident about it. Other businesses may have a challenge. I see people sitting in outdoor restaurants. It's definitely a smaller volume, and that may be an economic yeah. risk. But I think people eating outside, uh, if they're not shouting or, or speaking loudly and spreading virus, I think that's also reasonably safe. And obviously with a vaccine and with more herd immunity, it will over time become more safe. Well, it, it seems like the two issues tie together in that, like once it gets cold, New Yorkers don't like to be cold. So we're not going to go out and sit uh, outside in a restaurant, which brings people back inside. Uh, you can't eat inside a restaurant until at least October 31st. It's the same thing for schools if it's crowded. What kind of indoor systems can you have to make the ventilation better so it's kind of like being outside? You're exactly right. So uh, I was recently at the dentist. And they have not only air cleaners that exchange air in the rooms frequently, but UV lights. And so they've already adopted a series to make that time in the chair a safer experience. And I think we're going to really have to do that. It would be smart to get a jump on this in certainly the New York City school system and really in other uh, classrooms. The most you can do is reduce risk. You can never eliminate risk. People may have asymptomatic carriage of the virus, certain kids. But I think if we can do better air exchange filters, ultraviolet light, we can, I think, at least reduce the risk to everyone in the classroom. So, Ian, I, I ask this of almost everyone when we talk about the virus or the markets right now. As you think about it from a physician's perspective, what worries you the most about the virus at this point? Well, uh, exactly as Alex said, you know, we're going into the uh, fall and winter where mm. it will be difficult to be outside where we will, by definition, have closer contact. You can't entertain outside. And I don't think we're going to have a vaccine until early 2021. That's widespread January or February. And exactly as you said, not everyone is willing to take it. So I think we may reach a crunch, not only in the number of cases, but in the, the exposure as the weather gets colder, as we move indoors, uh, and as we perhaps get a second wave. So I think no matter how we slice it, we're going to see more and more cases, and unfortunately, more and more hospitalizations and deaths. And we're seeing that in the South. And uh, the next area to rule may be other parts of the country that have been spared so far. Right. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, we will keep in touch with you. You are always great at giving us the, the latest, and we really, really appreciate it. Have a great weekend. Dr. Ian Lesbader, Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine, NYU's Langone Medical Center, joining us on the phone and Alex, you nailed it. I mean, schools, 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 schools. I Are feel like. Are your boys, one's in college or going to college? Uh, both, both, fig both finish, one finishing high school next year and one uh, going to be a junior. Yeah. So okay. one senior, one junior. But they're going back, right? They're going back as of right now. Yeah. Yeah. 
here in Westchester, part of New York State. But we are um, <laughs> thinking we're, we're still waiting to hear on the what the gov- what Governor Cuomo has to say because he is going region by region. So we'll see where all that ends up. You know, I feel like Alex coming out of that conversation with Dr. Ian Lesbader, it is fair and right to remind people that this virus is still ravaging this country. It's easy, maybe a little easier to lose sight of that here in the greater New York area, the tri-state area, because the numbers are way down. But California reporting the biggest one-day record of 159 COVID-19 deaths. Uh, And California, I don't know how you feel about this, but it felt like at the beginning, California was on it. Totally agree. And then all of a sudden, and I don't know the intricacies of which regions opened up faster and then how it spread, to be honest. But you're right in that they had it together and the cases were down and then look what happened. And I think the reason why this matters to investors is the difference in asset allocation. So if you owned U.S. assets because of the safety trade and because the U.S. government has a lot of room to move and because of the Fed, and then you see the case is just not under control and you see much more activity in Germany. If you just take a look at restaurants activity, for example, it's exploding right. in Germany versus here. Um, where do you put your money then? Yeah, I, I think it's a it's a really good point because we are trying to, to get a handle on this. I mean, to go back to something you said before, increasingly the reporting that I'm seeing indicates that you really have a tale of two states in California, that Northern California, hmm. which did lock down a little bit sooner, led by San Francisco, the mayor of San Francisco, and really that whole Bay Area all the way down through Silicon Valley to, to San Jose – they locked down very early, stayed locked down. Southern California was just enough behind. Mm-hmm. And I think especially as you go south, just south of Los Angeles into Orange County and maybe down to San Diego, you know, you saw, you, you go back, you think about those pictures from the beaches a, a few weeks ago um, or maybe now a couple months ago. Time sort of is melding together here. There is no time. Um, there is no time. It's irrelevant. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it is – those are two very different things. And, and I, I talked with a few people this week who basically said, listen, I'm in Northern California and that's a big uh, distinction. But listen, mm-hmm. I mean, you look at Texas and, and also Texas. I was talking to somebody this morning about this. Sort of depends on where you are in Texas as well. Florida is a little bit similar too. So, um, but what we do know is exactly what you said a few minutes ago or a minute ago, which is it's not under control. Mm-mm. No, it's not. Um, and I think what's also interesting is If we do get it under control in that maybe the cases that we're recording are younger people, so hospitalizations eventually will tick lower, and we do get stimulus out of D.C., um, how does that set up the U.S. economy then? I mean, I I don't know how much we're priced for that particular scenario either, and I just wonder how you look at that. Um, maybe you look at U.S. real yields and the inflation expectations, and that's kind of what we're, we're looking at. But I think that's an interesting part, uh, uh, situation, too, if we actually get it under control. Right. And so much of it, you're exactly right. So much of it. Keep saying that. I'm exactly right. I, I'll come back anytime. I know. I know. I really. I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> I never get the, that at home. <laughs> I'm president of the Alex Steele fan club. Um, but, you know, a lot of this is on the minds of legislators, clearly, as they try and figure out what happens with this next round. And someone who's watching this really, really closely is Derek Johnson. He is the president and chief executive officer of the NAACP. He joins us on the phone from Baltimore. Derek, really nice to have you with Alex and myself. Thank you for the opportunity. So let's talk about what's going on just down the road from you in Washington as Congress and the administration try and figure out 
what this next round should look like. What is your key piece of advice, your key piece of input to them? I will hope uh, Congress will consider everyday working people, uh, consider our economy, and to make sure our elections are safe. Uh, Those are the key things that are on the table now. Uh, Vote by mail provision, making sure that the election administration is in place so we can carry out elections in November, Uh, making sure that there are some extensions of things like the unemployment benefits and a few other things that are lingering because of the current health crisis that we're in, making sure that there, there are resources for uh, municipal and state governments because they are, they are about to hit a financial wall, which will be devastating across the country. And in terms of action, um, no matter what the government does, what kind of steps do you see companies making that are real? We see a lot of numbers being thrown out, uh, X amount of money to uh, black VCs, uh, X amount of money for e- equality, et cetera. What's real? Well, what is real is true systemic approaches to address the decades-long problems that have built up around inequity. Uh, some companies are are seizing upon the moment to give the rosy statements and then Uh, In a few months from now, when all of the attention has died down, uh, whether or not they're going to go back to business as usual. Uh, I think Robert Smith have put forth a really good uh, and a smart plan uh, to talk about the 2% solution. Uh, We have 21 African-American banks across the country. Uh, How can they uh, get more capital to lend out to build a stronger entrepreneur class within the black community? The number one problem with entrepreneurs and small businesses in the black community is access to capital. And with more capital, you see more growth. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's a great opportunity uh, that has been untapped and unrealized. Well, and it's interesting. I did want to talk to you, if we could, Derek, briefly about a deal that you did with Viacom CBS because, you know, so much of this really is – it's an economic piece that you just discussed. There's also a representation piece that ties right into that uh, into that economic piece of it. Tell us about this deal with CBS. Well, we uh, begin to have a conversation with CBS Studios. Uh, with the goal in mind of NAACP partnering to build and develop content, uh, how people see African Americans on the screen, whether big screen or television, oftentimes is the perception of how we are treated uh, out in public. Uh, for the NAACP, we have always advocated around the images that are projected. At a 111-year-old organization, our second major advocacy fight was around the release of a movie called Birth of a Nation, because we knew the impact of that movie would have a devastating impact on African Americans uh, in 1915, and which came, which came to be true. As a result of that movie, uh, Klan membership uh, was greater in states like Indiana and Michigan uh, in the 1930s than it was membership in states of Georgia, Alabama, and Mississippi. Uh, that projection from that movie uh, spurred a whole new unfortunate reality for African Americans and how we were treated. Mm-hmm. So this deal is uh, leaning on that on that reality. We have a president in Hollywood. We do an annual show called the Image Awards, but it's our goal to expand our footprint so that more positive images will be projected of African Americans because there are so many rich stories right. around how we help America be um, the America we know. 
All right. We're going to leave it there. Thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Derek Johnson, president and CEO of the NAACP. We'll hope you'll come back. He joined us on the phone from Baltimore. And Alex, such an important point there at the end. And, you know, takes me back, not a little quick flex here, you know, to the story that I was working on for a long time about LeBron James and Maverick Carter, what they're doing with Spring Hill. You know, they did a documentary about the first female millionaire in the United States, African-American woman uh, just down the road from me in Irvington, New York, Madam C.J. Walker. So that's Westchester, but still New York but still New York. But it's important to remember that. It, it is important to remember <laughs> that. And I'm glad you made that distinction. It means a lot to me. It means a lot to me. You know, it means a lot that you're listening to me and, and that I just, uh, I, I want to be We're heard not married. You. I'll listen to you all the time. <laughs> you're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. All right, let's talk a little Business Week economics now. Uh, This is the guy we need to hear from as everything is going on between the U.S. and China. Uh, Alex, we're talking about Tom Orlick, Chief Economist for Bloomberg Economics. He joins us on the phone from Washington. All right, Tom, I feel like this is a little bit of a reality check Friday. So many headlines, so much rhetoric. But even beyond that, some actual action being taken with consulates closing here in the United States and then, of course, over in Chengdu. What do you make of this? Great to be on, Jason. Um, So I think the latest developments um, are a little bit alarming. Hmm. Um, If we think about the last four years of of U.S.-China relations under the Trump administration, um, clearly it's not been super friendly, right? Uh, We've had a trade war. We've had sanctions on Huawei, um, but all of it was within the framework of uh, engagement, right? There was a recognition Uh. that there were benefits to the relationship. Yes, the U.S. said China was behaving badly on intellectual property, on market access, and we needed to take steps to address that. But if we could address those problems, then we could have a mutually beneficial trading relationship. If you read the latest speeches by senior officials, uh, the Pompeo speech, uh, the Barr speech, the O'Brien speech, there's just a completely different tone. Um, It's no longer talking about some problems that we need to fix so we can move forward. Um, It's talking really in terms of a, a sort of an existential conflict between two mutually incompatible systems. Um, And if that's the approach which D.C. uh, is now taking, um, then the question is, well, what can the U.S. and China work together on in a constructive way? What is interesting to me is the last two days, President Trump in some capacity said that he no longer loved the trade deal, that he likes it less because of COVID. What does that mean? What does that signify to you? Yeah, I think that's a really that was a striking quote from President Trump, Alex. Um, uh, and I think that the trade deal, um, it's sort of it's funny to think about it in this way in some ways, because, uh, of course, the trade negotiations and the tariffs at the time were sort of an enormous source of conflict between China and the U.S. Um, but in retrospect, it now seems that actually that was what was keeping things on the rails. Right. It was the desire to get a trade deal done, which was preventing these sort of more hawkish voices uh, from 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 increasing the volume uh, and adding tension to the relationship. Uh, And now we have the COVID crisis. The trade deal just seems much less important. So we're seeing these much more hawkish voices from Pompeo, from Barr, from O'Brien, from O'Brien starting to reshape the debate. 
So, Tom, uh, I neglected to mention, and I should always mention when someone has a new book out, you have a great new book out. It's called China, the Bubble That Never Pops. I do wonder, through that lens, through the economic lens that you view the entire world, but especially China, what are the economic ramifications? And as Alex just, Alex just nicely teed up, you know, trade is clearly a part of this. And as you're looking at China and its economic might or its economic fragility, what do political moves like this ultimately potentially mean? So um, I think about this in two steps, Jason. Uh, so the first question is, well, what if the U.S. just goes down this path on its own? What if the U.S. unilaterally attempts to kind of freeze China out? Um, well, if that happens, I'd actually be more worried about costs to the U.S. Uh, because if that happens, China can continue to do technology transfer, do trade with the European Union, with Japan, with Korea, with all the other emerging markets in the world. Um, second step is, or the second question is, well, what if the U.S. starts to build a kind of multilateral alliance around this new view on China, right? What if the U.S. convinces Europe, Japan, Korea, and other countries that there is this existential threat? Um, and it's not just the U.S., but it's all these other countries saying, we need to change the trade relationship. We can't cooperate with you on research. We can't share our technology. Um, if that happens, um, I think we're going to have to start getting a little bit more pessimistic on China's uh, medium-term growth prospects. Mm. Haven't we started to see that? Uh, and the recent moves by the UK, for example. Um, France, though, sticking with Huawei for now. But aren't we starting to see this? Yeah. So I think that's another good point, Alex. Um, so three years ago, it really seemed like the US was out on its own on this, uh, and indeed doing a bunch of things which weren't that constructive, right? So the U.S. was trying to have a trade war with China, Mexico, Canada, and Europe all at the same time. Uh, and when you do that, you can't bring your allies with you if your main objective is, is changing the relationship with China. Um, so what's changed clearly in the last few months is that we've seen some other voices, the U.K., Australia, um, really start to, to change their tone on China. The U.K., for example, saying they're going to pull Huawei out of their telecom system. Um, the question I have, uh, and it's sort of it's a difficult one to answer, is well, what happens in November? Um, is the is a if we get the Trump administration coming back, then clearly it would be sort of on the same course. If we get a Biden administration, how much would they be locked into this new sort of adversarial relationship with China, uh, and how much would they try and sort of pull back and say, yes, there's areas where we disagree and we need to be tough here but there's also areas where we can work together. Tom Orlick, you always make us smarter. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Tom Orlick, of course, is chief economist for Bloomberg Economics. Joining us on the phone from D.C. And check out his very timely book, China, The Bubble That Never Pops. It's a terrific read, uh, and you should read it during quarantine. You got time, right? Yeah, we have. You like what China? is time? What's time yeah, anyway? Uh, I know. But we are it, seeing China get more aggressive in other areas, like with India, for example, yeah. South China Sea. So I wonder how offensive or defensive that actually is right now in this environment. 
And I really liked Tom's point, too, about, you know, what November brings and really, I guess, more pointedly, uh, what a new administration brings versus a maybe uh, slightly more aggressive uh, Trump administration uh, when it comes to China, because this certainly has been a story that we've been following very closely mm -hmm. and will continue to. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Jason Kelly and Alex Steele here with you on a Friday. So let's turn to the magazine. A great story by William Turton. He is cybersecurity reporter for Bloomberg, joining us on the phone from New York, along with Joel Weber, editor of Bloomberg Businessweek. He joins us from Massachusetts. I love this story, Joel, in part because I read it and said, wait, did that say fax machine? What? What? This is an analog. <laughs> what is a fax uh, machine? Story, to say no, the exactly. least. What? Tell us and about it. We brought we brought William here to tell us all about fax machines. Um, <laughs> no, but for real, this uh, it's sort of this incredible story. Um, a company called Norse Hydro, big player in the aluminum world, uh, it ha was the victim of a ransomware attack. And usually that does not end well for companies. And there's a whole cottage industry of of consultants who who come to your assistance to help you uh, get yourself out of a bind and maybe even negotiate. Um, and pay the Bitcoin. And uh, this company, Norse Hydro, uh, said, we're not going to do that. And they went totally analog uh, for as an answer. Uh, and and uh, William was the one who sort of unearthed this story for us. Um, William, how did how did you find this story? And how did this drama uh, unfold there at the company? So thanks for having me, by the way. You know, something that's really interesting is that companies are very often hit by these kind of ransomware attacks. But, you know, what they decide to do is to um, keep it quiet. You know, they don't want people to know that they've been hit by a ransomware attack. And, you know, it's kind of understandable. You have these concerns about customer data and the reputation of your of your company. But uh, Norris actually did something really different here. Um, you know, most companies keep this all wrapped up under attorney-client privilege when they bring in these consultants to, to fix the attack. But North decided that they would talk about it and they would talk about their response. So I was really grateful to them for kind of letting me inside and, and seeing how it all worked. And, you know, the story is pretty incredible. They Their entire network was taken down and suddenly at all their plants and all their uh, offices around the world had to kind of scramble to keep the company running, to keep everything afloat and to figure out, you know, how do you pay employees? How do you process orders when you literally don't have access to your corporate network anymore? How did you find this story? Uh, so a lot of the, the word kind of got out that Norse had been hit by ransomware, right? They had posted publicly that their network was down. And also, you know, something really interesting happens often when um, companies are hit by ransomware. You know, you'll have the kind of smart computer people come in and a lot of times they'll upload, uh, you know, the malware that the company got hit with to a, a portal called Virus Total. So suddenly on the same day that there was, um, you know, uh, a ransomware event announced at North, there was an upload from Norway to VirusTotal of this, this ransomware called Locker Goga. Um, so, you know, you could kind of put the pieces together that they had been hit by Locker Goga. Um, so from there, I kind of reached out to the company and, and they were gracious enough to let me come inside and see what it was like. I mean, William, it is sort of amazing how reliant we are on technology. I mean, I'm sure everyone on this interview uh, has had that experience of, you know, the power goes out or the Wi-Fi goes out, and you're like, 
what am I supposed like everything I need and do and want relies on this and I'm just a dude like I'm not running a company here it's got to be a a really sort of disturbing thing enter the fax machine (laughs) right you know there's there's this kind of great character in the story this guy Michael Hammer who runs the plant in, in Cresona Pennsylvania he's been running this aluminum plant for 25 years you know, I walked around with him. He could tell you every single little detail of how the plant works and who works there. But he has this great quote that's in the story. He said, you know, I didn't know what the hell a Bitcoin was um, when these got hacked. So, you know, a lot of people were, were scrambling and figuring out what to do. And they and they seriously were just, I, you know, they had an incident response plan. They had, plan, you know, business continuity plans. But at some level, you kind of have to wing it, right? So, you know, they were setting up group chats on text messages on their own personal phones. They were placing signs on the door. Um, you know, banks would not communicate with Norsk electronically because the banks were afraid that, you know, somehow maybe the malware might jump from the Norsk network to their network. So they had to find ways to issue payments and invoices, yeah. and, and that involved, you know, faxing uh, back and forth. So a great part of the story becomes this analog solution um, that the company ends up uh, doing. And c- could you walk us uh, through that? process, William. And then also, I'm curious, you know, what for, for other companies out there, like if, if this, God forbid, ever happens to them, like what's the end game ultimately look like? And you have one minute right. to do that, William. <laughs> sure. So, you know, they, they brought employees in and a lot of employees were concerned about their data being missing. And they brought in Microsoft. They brought in other teams. And they what they did is they rebuilt their entire network from scratch. Um, they had backups. Uh, to rebuild the network. But the key for, you know, for other businesses, you'll hear this from cybersecurity companies, is that you need to make sure that your corporate data is backed up and that you test those backups so that it works. Because these criminal ransomware groups are constantly on the hunt for vulnerable companies, and they'll attack you whether, you know, you're you're secure or insecure. You know, they'll spend a lot of time researching your company and trying to, you know, infect it with malware and then hold you for millions of dollars of ransom in some cases. Um, so you need to be like vigilant and, and not think that it won't happen to you because, you know, eventually it might. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's a great story. A nice weekend read. William Turton, cybersecurity reporter for Bloomberg, joining us on the phone from New York City. Joel Weber, the editor of the magazine, joined us from Massachusetts. Crippled by ransomware, an aluminum giant went analog to survive. Faxes, post-its, and old PCs to beat those bad cyber criminals, Alex Steele. I mean, I still use post-its. Yes. Yeah. You should look oh. at my computer. It's like littered in post-its. Oh, yeah, no. I my my regular uh, broadcast wife has that same problem. <laughs> I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me. I wanna drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Delighted to have back with us Randy Watts, chief investment strategist for O'Neill Global Advisors. Joining us on the phone from what I'm guessing is very steamy. Miami. He joins Alex Steele and me on this Friday afternoon. All right, Randy, first of all, how are you? How are things down in Florida? 
Uh, things in Florida are a little messy. Obviously, the number of cases has been rising pretty pretty rapidly, and, and some of the hospitals are starting to see a real uh, increase in the ICU uh, utilization. Hopefully, that is going to uh, peak out soon. Uh, but obviously, it's, you know, like in many parts of the country, having an impact on the local economy. Yeah. Uh, I love that you ask people that, by the way, on this show. I think that's awesome. Well, thank Side you. Side note. You're welcome. Thank um, you. Randy, when you take a look at, say, so it's messy down there, and there's some messy things happening in the market, and I did want to start with gold because it seems to want to break out, but it's been like a melt up rather than a break out in the last kind of few days. What do you see on the charts for this? I think, uh, first of all, gold does look good technically. We've been positive on it for, I think, over a year now, and I think what it's really reacting to is, first, that money supply in the U.S. is up very strongly. It's up about 25%. Uh, year to year. Uh, that's been driven partially by the Fed balance sheet expansion. The Fed balance sheet at the low last September was about $3.8 trillion. It's now risen to close to $7 trillion, and I think gold is reacting to that. I also think it continues to be a historical store of value and a defensive play, and I think people are very uncertain about both the economy and financial markets, and that's a logical place for them to, to go to. Randy, I do want to ask you about this rally that, you know, this past couple of days notwithstanding we've been seeing. And it does seem to be driven by a pretty small number of stocks in a pretty narrow set of sectors. I mean, we do have these days where everything seems to be up. But ultimately, if you sort of strip out some of those specific names, maybe it's not so great. How do you analyze that? So a couple of things. The first is that there's two sectors that are up double digit year to date. That's tech and consumer discretionary. Combined, those are about 38% or so of the market. So they've really been driving driving the tape. The top five stocks of the S&P right now are about 22% uh, of the index, and clearly they have been driving it. What's been driving that is really that they've had pretty good earnings and, and revenue growth, and the market has gravitated to where uh, growth is. Uh, I do think for the market to move higher right now, we really need to see a broadening into some other sectors and hopefully have some of these beaten up sectors like financials, which are down 21 percent year to date, start to do better. So I think the, the technical look for the market is the market's likely to kind of stall out or go sideways here uh, unless we can see that broadening. And I think that broadening has got to be driven by a better outlook on the economy. How do you feel about next week going into big tech earnings like Facebook, Amazon, Google, uh, Apple. I mean, are we set up for disappointment a la the Microsoft situation? And I wonder if that sort of triggers that reversal into value that you're talking about. I think there's, I think there's a few things going on. First off, earnings season so far, about 25% of the S&P 500 has reported. 82% of those companies that have reported have reported positive surprises. So I think what's going on with regards to earnings is that the bar is very low, and a lot of companies are kind of stepping over that. Uh, Though we should note that if you look on a year-to-year basis for the market, earnings are right now running down about 42%, and sales are running down about 10.5%. So the absolute numbers aren't that great. What's been troubling the market recently, and you you kind of saw it with the Microsoft quarter, was that forward guidance is, is actually coming down right now. So if you look at where we were for earnings, entering earnings season, and where we are now, that forward 2021 number is falling. Right now, it's about $159 for the S&P 500. 
That's about a 25% gain the market is projecting for next year in earnings. And I think that's optimistic. And I think those earnings are going to have to come down. So I think the market is focused not on this quarter. And again, I think for big tech earnings next quarter, a lot of them are going to be pretty good. But it's really what it, what do they, what do they look like for the future? And I think there is risk at disappointment because I think those numbers still have to come down. Randy, in a typical year, if 2020, shall I say, if 2020 were a typical year in any form or fashion, we would be talking a lot already and certainly a lot over the next month or so through November about the presidential election. I know you've done some analysis historically about this. How much does what we're living through right now, if I hear the word unprecedented one more time from anyone about anything, I, I don't know. Like, I, I, it, it's it's a little frustrating, even though it's true. Will it be um, unprecedented? It will be unprecedented, <laughs> my reaction. Um, but what how do you sort of think technically about a presidential election in a year that's as topsy turvy as this? I like how you made that pun there in an election year, uh, unprecedented. Um, so a couple of things. I think I think the election is on investors' minds, but I think right now it's actually third on the list. So I think the first thing investors are concerned about is, is this stimulus bill going to happen and what's in it? So that's, that's the, the most immediate data point. I think the next data point is, are we amping up again a trade war with China? The S&P 500 gets about 10% of its sales in Asia, uh, the majority of that in China. So I think if we're going to amp that up again, that's another negative for 2021 earnings. And then finally, the election. I think investors are going to start to focus on the election more, but I think that's a late, more of a late summer type event. I think these first couple of data points initially are going to matter more. Normally what happens is the market technically usually has a stalling out period in the summer and then kind of rallies after the election. Uh, I'm not sure if we're going to see that again uh, but I think given how far the market has moved, and given the fact that we are in the summer, I would not surprise me to see the market go either sideways or pull back right here. Interesting. All right. Uh, great to catch up with you, as always. Randy Watts, one of our faves. Carol will be sad she missed you. She sends her regards. Seeing, having seen you on the rundown, she said to make sure and tell you hello. Chief Investment Strategist for O'Neill Global Advisors, joining us on the phone from Miami. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can always listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. 